Welcome to the Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta, and we are back uh, for our first official episode of 2024. And, you know, just before the holidays, we talked to Bethany McLean about our screwed up healthcare system. It was such a popular episode that we have brought her back on to both talk about healthcare, but also talk about the litany of scandals that we uh, had a chance to witness in 2023, and some of which are going to carry over to 2024. Bethany, welcome back. Thanks for having me. It's a fun Happy way to start 2024. I know. Same to you. 2024. I mean, it just feels we're well beyond the back to the future future now, and it feels so weird. But one thing we can count on is just scandal. And the last yeah. time that we talked, you were basically owning up to the fact that your your sort of tinfoil hat is getting a more ornate probably by the year. And I can't you know, move on without talking about Epstein. You know, there, there's all this fanfare about this list. I'm not even sure what the list was. It was released yesterday. We have a lot of sort of conspiracy warm people in our audience, and they're not going to love at least what I have to say about this, which was, I don't think there was anything new I saw there. Maybe David Copperfield. I, I just haven't been following him for a while, but is there anything in there that you saw that was in any way interesting? No, I didn't. And I was really surprised by the play that this got because there really wasn't anything in there that we didn't know, even no new salacious details. But, you know, look, I think there are two separate issues. One is what actually happened to Jeffrey Epstein. And let's just all admit it, we're never going to know the answer to that. So you can have whatever conspiracy theory you like about that because it's probably never going to be proven wrong. But the other is the question of the other men who were involved with Epstein's victims. And that was what I expected to see more disclosure around, given the headlines about this this new stuff. And there, I didn't think there was any much much there there. Yeah, and for our audience, if you hear dogs barking, Bethany has a bunch of dogs in the background. There, we were yes. we were warned about this. <laughs> I think the most interesting thing, and this mirrors the conversation we had about the pandemic, is when bad things happen. Instead of indicting a system which clearly had wronged the victims of Epstein. Anybody who follows it knows that it took way too long to get justice. We want a partisan explanation. So you've got people trading on, oh, this Trump's name in it? Is Bill Clinton's name in it? And sure, like there are political actors, but what I think is interesting is there were just a lot of different powerful people hanging out with this guy. And it was pretty obvious to most people in and around him. There were a lot of whispers that this guy was a creep, which is you know, you could talk about Weinstein, you could talk about a lot of other people. There are a lot of people who look the other way when creepy men do creepy things if those men are powerful. You know, and that doesn't have to do with politics. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. We're going to have to find something to fight about as we continue this episode. But I also love how my large Doberman Pinscher started to bark at the perfectly yes. <laughs> moment during the creepy men doing creepy things. The Doberman said, and I'm on it. Anyway, but I, I agree with you. I don't see anything partisan about this. The Epstein story is a really horrible story of, of the dark side of human nature, but I don't think it's a political story. I guess I'm going to rescind a little bit of what I said, because in the end, it is a broken system. And I don't think there is a way to prosecute or punish a lot of the people who hung out with Epstein, even after they should have known better. And so in some ways, there cannot be too much attention on this, because people who continue to spend time with him after after Florida I don't think you can embarrass them too much because that's the only punishment they're ever going to get. And people will feel that kind of shame. So I, I'm going to contradict what I started with. Even if there are no new salacious details and no new names, you know what, rehashing the ones we know, I guess in some ways I'm all, I'm all for it. 
Yeah, I agree with you. I, I do think, and and I don't want to get us into legal trouble, so I won't mention names, but it seems like a lot of consequences have happened in people's marriages and in other areas of life because of this kind of stuff. And, you know, Harvard is a good example where like a lot of people just seem to be hanging with this guy that I mean, that were baffling to me and, and they should have to answer for that. But it is interesting that just like with the pandemic, people are like, instead of looking at the very obvious systemic problems we have, they want to point to the political party that they don't like. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. Which it's, I just don't see the connection. What I wanted to start with, uh, you know, before this Epstein news happened was turn the clock all the way back to Enron, because what we what wasn't obvious when we talked last time was that, you know, as you're kind of beginning your career, I think in reporting early on, you wrote an article that was the equivalent of, I think it was like, is Enron overpriced or something like that, right? Yeah. yeah. I've joked that I should have won awards for the meekest title in business journalism history, because given that Enron was bankrupt six months later, I think it was overpriced. <laughs> well, anyway. it, it, wasn't there a very similar like when Madoff was happening, somebody had written in one of the trade journals some very similarly titled article, like is the largest hedge fund a fraud or something like I that? I think so. Or, or over, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I, th I think so. And I'm trying to remember. I think it was Aaron Arvedland, who I'm pretty sure is the reporter who had written that story. But I, but I, you know, I might be, I might be wrong. I was working on a book during the Madoff scandal. And so that is one that, and other people did such wonderful coverage of that, that it is one where I am, I am secondhand at best. Yeah. It's, if you don't know, side sort of anecdote is my brother is a federal corrections officer. He was Bernie Madoff's oh. corrections officer in his final days. Yeah. He has a lot to say about that, but I won't go into that. <laughs> I want to hear all of that. That's fascinating. He had a lot of very interesting people. I think he, it, maybe depending where SPF goes, he could go there. But you know, on the Enron side of things, give us a little history lesson. So you're, you're writing about Enron. Who is Enron at this point? Because a lot of our people are either too young to know what happened or have for, totally forgotten. What was it that you discovered about Enron and how did it unravel so fast? So I'm going to answer that in two ways, because there were a lot of other business collapses around that time. And I think there's a reason that Enron remains so interesting to people. But in the decade before its collapse, and really in the few years before its collapse, Enron was one of the most celebrated companies in the country, if not in the world. Um, the stock traded at an incredibly high multiple. Jeff Skilling, who was the company's, had just become the company's CEO, and Ken Lay, who had been the CEO and had become chairman, were on the cover of magazines, you know, featured as pioneers who were changing the, changing the world of energy. Almost every analyst on Wall Street who covered Enron had a buy rating on the stock. You know, this was supposed to be the next big thing. There are some interesting analogies to maybe to Tesla today, although I'm going to get in trouble for saying that. <laughs> so I do not mean to imply that Tesla is, is, is a fraud. So it was a shock to people that a company that celebrated and that big, ranked by revenues, although Enron's revenues were, were a little bit made up, but ranked by revenues, Enron was the seventh biggest company in the country. So the idea that you could have a company that could have this gleaming new skyscraper being built in Houston, Texas, and this huge company, and employees had their retirements tied up in the company, and executives told employees to keep buying more stock, and that all of Wall Street could be behind this company as the greatest, next greatest thing ever. Harvard Business School did a number of case studies on Enron and how they were changing the world. I've been told that those case studies are nowhere to be found now. Speaking of owning up to past mistakes, Harvard does not want to own up to them. 
And so the idea that a company like that could just go poof, really in the space of six months from celebrated to gone, bankrupt. And at the time, it was the largest corporate bankruptcy in the US. It was just astonishing to people. And now I want to get to that larger issue. Part of why it was astonishing was that hadn't happened in a really long time. Now, especially after last year, we're pretty accustomed to scandals. And I think a lot of your listeners are probably like, yeah, businesses corrupt and businesses go belly up and the executives get rich and everybody else loses. What's what's new about that? But Enron was the first in many ways. And it was the beginning of, I think, a darker view of capitalism and a darker view of our corporate culture that unfortunately turned out not to be a one-off. If you had asked me at the time, I would have said, and I think I did say, oh, I've seen my scandal. What, too bad it came early in my career, but this isn't happening again. I mean, this, do- this doesn't happen and this is not happening again. And no, I'm not looking for another scandal because that's the one. And as it turns out, obviously it, it wasn't the one, you know, it's followed a few years later, five years later by the global, six years later by the start of the global financial crisis. And since then we've seen just one, one after the other. So I think that's why the story still resonates and why, and why it's important. And plus it's just a great story. Yeah, and I think that there are a couple of things about Enron that are, you know, they're not always present in these kind of business scandals, but there's almost like a checklist, right? One is really bad internal culture, right? And your work and some of the documentaries about this, I think, paint a really vivid picture about how just wild that place was and and how that culture of risk-taking was endemic to the company and it wasn't just about financial risk-taking. They were like riding motorcycles and like you know, they're not the best people in the world. Two is weird accounting, right? They had the mark to market, if I think if I remember very correctly, but a lot of these other companies like SBF is a good example today, or Adam Newman, like these people who use shifty accounting to hide losses or inflate their earnings or present something to to investors that isn't exactly accurate. Uh, and then third is connections and sort of water carrying being done by political leaders, business leaders, journalists, like the sort of the power structures sort of scratching the backs of some of these powerful people. You kind of put those three things together and you say, all right, these are, at least if I'm counting, I'm probably missing some, but those seem to be like the kind of key markers of the kinds of scandals that we've seen from Enron to this day. I'd add a couple of others to your list, and I think that's a great list. Maybe we should start keeping a list, and listeners should tell us if they've got any other other things they would add to that list. But I, I think another great one is the complicity of the victims. I mean, that's a unique, maybe it's not unique, but it's a pretty unique characteristic of white-collar fraud or business wrongdoing is that the whole thing would never happen if we all, and I'm using we loosely, weren't so willing to believe. And from Theranos to WeWork to SBF, all the way back to Enron, if people, investors, weren't willing to believe in the company, in the story the company was was selling, even when that story in retrospect was going to be clearly too good to be true, then the whole thing, the whole thing would never happen. So I think there's that. I think there's also a fine line. I've, I've spoken about this in the past, so it's not a new observation, but a fine line between visionaries and fraudsters. And there's always yeah. what, what gets us to believe is there's always an element of vision to these to these stories. And the vision is real, by the way, often. It's not a complete fraud. I think Madoff is the closest thing to a complete fraud to somebody who understood that he was doing bad things and stealing money and, and did it anyway that you see. There's a hefty element of self-delusion 
that goes on in this. This is my great vision and it's going to work and all I need is time and more money. Um, and that was true of Enron for, for sure. And it was true. Enron had a business called Enron Broadband that was really Netflix before its time. And so 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 there is and Theranos is has that same element to it. You know, Adam Newman wrapped WeWork, which was just a grungy real estate office leasing business and the grandeur of being, you know, this whole lifestyle thing. And so there's always even if the vision is really cheesy, there's always a vision component to it. Yeah. What was the other company? Was it WorldCom or something that had issues right around the time of Enron? And yeah. if I understand correctly, and this is true, a lot of the Internet bubble stocks of, of the, uh, what was it, 2000, I forget the year, a lot of them actually were not necessarily, like pets.com is a famous example. And I'm like, well, okay, that's actually not a bad, like the idea that you would own the space on the internet for pet supplies actually is a really good business. It's just the timing and the execution were wrong. You know, and yeah. I think that was true of a lot of these businesses. Yes. I know Chewy. I know Chewy very well, which I, I mean, maybe Chewy would argue about this. I've actually never looked at the similarities between Chewy and Pets.com, but Chewy is a great business. That's where I get most of my dog's dog food from. So <laughs> there, there you go. But yes, that's such a good point about the timing for some of these things. And I guess I'd add also that there is a difference between fraud and a bad business or a business model that just doesn't work. So not everything that doesn't work is is fraud. Yeah. You know, and, and I think like as we look ahead to 2024, right, because we, we we can look back at this past year is actually really interesting because some of the scandals hit this past year. I think SBF is an example of like just an amazing speed at which justice happened. Uh, but yeah. a lot of these like Theranos wrapped up after many, many years. WeWork continues to be a story that I think is interesting because Newman basically got away scot-free yes. for what he did. But then we look ahead and there are certain ambiguous cases, right? You, you mentioned like, how do we read things like Tesla? But OpenAI, I find an interesting one, one that we talked about here a lot, which uh -huh. is, I find really fascinating because it's, it is that fine line between visionary and I wouldn't say fraud, but I would say questionable and opaque practices, right? You have this nonprofit company operating a for-profit model, which I find really baffling. You have a board of directors and the key visionary technologists within the company who raised flags that we still haven't fully gotten explanations for. And then you have the for-profit tail wagging the dog in the sense of Microsoft and every powerful Silicon Valley person kind of stepping in and bigfooting this ostensibly independent board. And we're now left to say this probably the most important technology of the 21st century so far the most visionary and fast-moving company in that space has now transformed before our eyes. And I don't think we have an explanation as for how it has transformed and what the implications of it are. So I'm not saying they're fraud, but I'm saying there's some major questions that haven't been answered as we head into 2024 in this company. Well, I think you're, and tell me if you'd agree with this or not, I think you're getting at another issue, which is you know, everybody always says the world is awash in information. And that's true. It is. It's awash in an incredible amount of information. But astoundingly enough, some of the things you most need to know or some of the things you would most like to know are still, still travel in very, very tight circles. So I, like you, think it's pretty astounding that we still don't know what happened at OpenAI. We still don't know why there was that revolt and whether it was for some stupid reason that the board and 
um, Ilya Satskaya, who's really well respected. And I, I'm actually paraphrasing a little bit Elon Musk, who at the Dealbook conference last last fall, which was this remarkable performance where you probably heard about it, where Musk just lost it and started, you know, basically said, fuck you to the company's advertisers. But he made this point, And of course, Musk has a competitor too. But he made this point that that this guy is really, really well respected, and that if he wanted, um, if he wanted Sam Altman gone, and he thought there was a problem here, then there was a problem, and we should all know what it is because yes. of AI's critical importance to the world. So I think that's th- that narrow issue is interesting, but also this bigger issue of it just when you really want to know something, it's astounding how difficult it can be to find out. Yeah, and I, I think like I don't go on Twitter very often, but I went on and I saw and I and I happen to follow. Maybe it's because of just people I've I've known over the years who come through. Uh, what's it called? His his incubators, Y Combinator. And I, I just saw one person after another going after this board, which the board, very puzzling behavior. And they, they, you talk about complicity. I like, even if the board was right, their behavior was very weird and not transparent. It wasn't, but, and I, and I don't like the board's behavior either, especially with something as critical as AI, but I think criticizing the board might be a look over here, yes. you know, yeah. don't see the gorilla walk, walking across your screen. And I think the gorilla walking across the screen is what was the issue? What, right. what was the issue? Cause it doesn't strike me as a flaky board and ousting your, your head guy is a really big deal. And of course, maybe somebody just had a temper tantrum and maybe they're embarrassed and they don't want to own up to what happened. Yeah, but how does all the how do all of them have a temper tantrum? That's my question. Right. <laughs> you know, like what are they getting on talking about? So it'll be an interesting year. I, I think like OpenAI, my fear is that we actually don't hear from them again on this kind of stuff and they become way more opaque and they just grow and we get GPT five and all sorts of tools. Well, the one thing that may stop that is the lawsuit filed by the New York Times, which I don't know about you, but I was really happy to see that. Tell me about that, because I don't know a lot about that. So the New, York, the New York Times filed a really detailed lawsuit basically saying that ChatGPT is stealing content from, is training its AI on New York Times content and stealing, I think the number was kind of a billion dollars in revenue that should have gone to the New York Times because it's open AI is using New York Times content. And I think it's actually a really pivotal question, both for the future of AI and for the future of journalism, because if AI can't access journalism, then in the end, what use is it, right? If you ask ChatGPT a question, at some point, you want the most up-to-date answer, <laughs> and you don't just want it digging through historical archives, right? And if any kind of AI model has to pay the journalist, the journalists that they're relying on, then you might have a way to rescue the dire state of journalism, um, including local journalism. Because again, what good is ChatGPT if you ask it for a question about what's going on with your school board and it can't access your local paper in order to know what's going on with the school board, right? Yeah. So maybe I'm maybe I'm thinking about this in too simplistic a way, but I think I think this New York Times lawsuit is really worth paying attention to. Oh, that's so fascinating. Congress is talking about doing something about it, but it's they're so damn slow. You know, it's like I, I mean. Here, here's another question for you. We were I was talking about this with some people I work with this morning, and I, I worry about our 
culture and how quickly we move from one thing to the next. Because whatever happened to all the conversation about Facebook and the great investigative reporting about all the awful things Facebook is doing and the debate over whether Section 230 that allows um, internet companies not to be responsible for their content, whether that should be repealed and they should be treated as publishers. It just kind of all went away. All of a sudden it got quiet. And we're all talking about Elon Musk and we're talking about OpenAI. And speaking of conspiracy theories, (laughs) what do you think? Well, it's also Claudine Gay. It's like whatever the news story is, right? Like a lot of these hearings, if you follow the hearings over the summer, right? There was a, there were bold promises in the spring that they were going to do all this AI regulation and hold all these hearings and write all this legislation. And what are we doing? We're investigating Hunter Biden. We're dragging university presidents who like, I'm not sympathetic to it in the least. Like, I don't think they acquitted themselves well. And I, you know, I think gay, like clearly committed plagiarism. So I'm not here to defend her. But it just seems like a misuse of time and resources when we have such bigger questions, right? Let Harvard's board and Harvard's alumni fight out what's going on at Harvard. I obviously think the Hunter Biden investigation is ridiculous, but it's like, like let's actually work on these big problems, right? And and some of these people tipped their hat, like Josh Hawley, like they tipped their hat at being serious about this kind of stuff. But the minute the red meat politics, you know, are available to them, that becomes their focus. Yes. I think you're right about that. And it is dismaying and getting anything smart done on social media, let alone AI, is going to require a lot of bipartisan compromise. And it really shouldn't be that that difficult, except to your point about partisan divides, the way it's become a sign of weakness to agree with somebody on the other side or a sign that you must be a secret sympathizer. <laughs> it's sort of like being a communist sympathizer back in the day, right? There must be something suspect about you if you think that anybody on the other side is anything good to say about anything. You've got to be oppositional. And it really locks us in a world where we can't get anything done, even on things that are should be pretty basic. I mean, I don't think regulating AI, figuring out how to regulate it or how to it, how to stop it from destroying the world is basic. I don't I don't mean to say that. Social media, I think, is a more basic question. I think social media has shown what it is, <laughs> and there's not much that's good about it. <laughs> so let's just go from there. Yeah. Well, you could imagine. I'm kind of a believer in slowing down AI, not stopping it, right? Slowing it down enough for us to adjust our society. And I think the lawsuit from the New York Times you described or and or regulation that prevents the AI from sucking up too much information without violating people's rights is a really, really important step to slow it down because it's only as good as the information it pulls from. Yeah. I think that's a that's a really good point, and I feel like I'm saying that a lot too. But but it's interesting because we I do a podcast with a guy at the University of Chicago, and we had a labor economist from MIT on, and his argument was if we had just done globalization more slowly to give people time to adapt and time to adjust and communities time to adjust to the impact of this, that it we might be in a different place now than than we are. The only thing that I think really complicates AI is that if, if we slow it down in the U.S., that doesn't mean anybody else around the world is slowing it down from other governments to bad actors. And so there's also an open question, no pun intended, about how much control the U.S. actually has. Let's do a complete 180 and talk about the pandemic again, because we one thing we sidestepped last time on purpose was the hotter topics of the pandemic. And so I wanted to go back over a few of those just to get your sense after reviewing this crazy experience we had to say, all right, what have we learned for the next public health? Hopefully we'll never have to live through one, but if we do, what have we learned 
let's start with the question of lockdowns generally. We talked a little bit about it last time, but we really we went through it really fast. What was the basis for the sort of stringent lockdowns? Like what, what was the history that public health officials were drawing upon to say, all right, lockdowns are a crucial measure to help stop the spread? Well, there really wasn't one. And that's what's so interesting about the whole thing. The world basically lurched into copying China because China locked down Wuhan. And so the world said, well, China must know what it's doing. And so we're going to copy China without anybody ever asking is this the right strategy? And can the West actually copy what an authoritarian country that is willing to employ its police against its citizens can do? So when you go back, I mean, there were discussions of lockdowns and quarantines as being helpful in a pandemic, particularly the 1918 flu. And there was this whole thing that got made a lot of that the cities that did better locked down more. But what got lost in that discussion was that even the cities that locked down the most were closed at most for a month. They didn't stay closed for for years on end. And we we lost sight of the fact that other things do matter, namely children's education. Whenever people would turn up their nose in the early stages of the pandemic and say, you just care about the economy, the economy is just money. I was like, no, the economy is people's ability to feed their families. The economy is life. It's society. If you don't have a functioning economy, you don't have a functioning society or a functioning eco- country for very long. You have to get over this, this sort of dismissal of the economy as too base a concern for anybody who really cares about humanity. If you care about humanity, you care about economies. And so I, I found that really discouraging um, in the beginning. But we we trace in the book the history of this guy, uh, a famous epidemiologist named D.A. Henderson, who was always pretty opposed to the idea of using lockdowns. His view was you have to do what society will tolerate. Theoretically, if you put anybody, everybody in their own box, will you stop the spread of a pandemic? Sure. But can society do that? Can people function? And I think our utter cluelessness on this was best encapsulated by a Twitter argument my co-author and I had with uh epidemiologist, I believe, who tweeted at us, well, you horrible people who don't believe in lockdowns, what would you do if we had a disease that was killing 50% of the population? And my co-author and I were both like, well, if we had a disease that was killing 50% of the population, I think we'd have a lot of things to worry about apart from lockdowns. Like who's going to be keeping your drugstores open and your grocery stores open and who's going to be delivering the food that all that many of the lockdown class relied on in order to lock down, right? And so there, there are a lot of bigger questions here. <laughs> and I think we just, the people who had the privilege of locking down just took for granted the preconditions that made it possible, like having Zoom, being able to work from home, being able to school your kids via Zoom, um, being able to grow, go to the grocery store and the pharmacy and have people who are there working, being able to order food, being able to order from Amazon, um, having the meat workers who got infected at terrible rates who are still going to slaughterhouses. And so I, a second issue with lockdowns is that we just didn't do them in a very fair way. Even if they were the right strategy, the way we practiced it was terribly unfair and and just exacerbated the divides in our society. And what did we learn from this sort of, you could call it a controlled experiment, but when we compare places like New York and California to Florida and Sweden, did we learn anything from these places that were more permissive? So it is really difficult to, you you could throw cold water on basically any comparison, particularly country to country, but even state to state, because we still don't really understand what made COVID, what makes COVID peak and then go away. And so it could be that 
Florida's age-adjusted mortality looks really good compared to California's because Florida has advantages that California doesn't have, like warmer weather. And maybe that protected Floridians more than any any kind of any kind of policy. Um, same with Sweden to the US. You can say that Sweden's excess mortality looks better than way better than the US because Swedes aren't trust their government and are conformist and believe. Nonetheless, if you do look broadly, it doesn't appear. It's it's hard. They're, they're conflicting studies, but most studies will tell you that there was no benefit to doing lockdowns. Yeah. And obviously there were costs. And, and there were costs. I'm curious, just for me personally, when you decided to take this on, I'll just tell you my experience, which is I, I generally am an institutionalist. I want to believe in institutions. So when, when all this is happening, I am like, all right, I'm just going to like listen to what everybody's saying. And I'm hearing people like Nicholas Christakis and stuff on podcasts who I really respect. And I'm like, all right, he's saying like, I don't know, it was St. Louis or something, like some some study from the flu said that closing schools was actually really critical to stopping the pandemic. And so everybody shut down. And I'm being told from my friends who are working in hospitals how overwhelmed everything is and how we're ignoring the plight of the people in hospitals and everybody's dying. It's a war zone. So as we're heading into the summer, I'm like, all right. We're a couple months into the the lockdowns. I'm sympathetic. And then I look at the people who are opposing it and I'm like, oh, well, I'm, you know, I don't want to be like, I don't want to throw my lot in with like conspiracizers and like the Aaron Rodgers of the world. So I'm like, basically in my sort of ideological defense mechanisms heading into the summer. And then I start to moderate, right? I'm like, all right, why are we wearing masks outside, closing beaches, gyms? Let's get businesses back open. I kind of moderate through the fall. Most people I know are like that, but I think there are major exceptions. I think there are people who are in the extremes of our society who are exceptions. And I think two are the people who seem to have a vested interest one way or the other. Sometimes the public health officials, sometimes the political leaders, and then I think on the flip side, the people who are very skeptical of things like lockdowns, vaccines, et cetera, feel very aggrieved. And so they don't want to give up the debates either. But what was your sort of evolution? How did you even come to write this book in the first place? I'm probably a little more reflexively contrarian than you are. And that's not, as I tell my kids all the time, that's no better than being reflexively a believer because it just means you're reacting to the against what people are saying rather than believing what people are saying. And both are dictated by both reactions are dictated by what other people are saying. So I'm, I'm aware of the flaws in my approach, but I am a little bit of a contrarian. I also... I guess what started to set me off pretty early on was that that I didn't have anything against closing schools while we took a look at how this this thing spread. But it was pretty apparent early on that healthy kids weren't at risk and that schools were not super spreading, super spreading places. And that turned out to be broadly true, that the um, transmission rate in schools was lower than the community transmission rate. So it was not influenza. It wasn't this disease that was spread where schools were the super spreaders. And it was clear from the data coming out of um, China and Italy early on that kids weren't at risk. And so when I saw a public health officials saying, your kids are going to die from this and <laughs> your kids can't be allowed to go on playdates, I was like, what are we doing? What are we doing? And I think the contrast, I think the two other things, the contrast between what was happening with children of the wealthy who could be either homeschooled or whose private schools were opening back up pretty quickly, or who um, whose parents were there to shepherd them through a Zoom school versus the children of the underprivileged, who we all say we care about the most, who were basically left to fend for themselves. And that, to me, 
what made a mockery of everything we say we care about. If you're a good progressive, then my God, you have to care about underprivileged children. That's that's the that's first and foremost, right? And yet the group we hurt the most during the pandemic was underprivileged children. And nobody seemed willing to look at that or do do anything about it. It was just like, yeah, 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 that's the cost we have to bear. I can almost assure you that if the children of the wealthy were also out of school, unable to be schooled during those years while, while kids in Europe were going back to school, there would have been a much bigger outcry than, than there was. But, you know, Gavin Newsom in California had his children in a private school that was open while California public schools were shut. I mean, yeah. how do I say enough? What's wrong with that? So I think that and then plus the um, the dismissal of the economy, this idea that is it's broader than the pandemic, but this idea that concerns about the economy are base and trivial and mean that you just care about money and you don't mm-hmm. care about people's lives. I thought, how stupid are you? Do you not understand that the, that the economy is our society and every major world war and conflagration that has happened as a result of a non-functioning economy? <laughs> you know, it just it's just these things are, are, are linked. You can't afford to be dismissed. Of, of, of the economy. And then I just got annoyed because when I'd speak out, people would say to me, oh, I didn't know you were you were a Trump voter. And I'd be like, <laughs> what do you mean? Why can I not have why can I not have a view on how we should handle a pandemic that is completely separate from what my politics are? Why should one thing dictate the other? What yeah, do they or, have to do with each other? Or it's just not enough to tip your politics in favor. Like, let's pretend for a second that he was pure and right on those issues, which obviously he was a mess on all these issues. But like, let's pretend he was just like absolutely correct on that. Like, there's obviously a lot of other issues, right? And like, I think the idea that you can give him credit for being right on something means that you have to agree with everything else he does is crazy. I I mean, as you point out in the book, like he he was just absolutely chaotic when it comes to the pandemic policy. And a failed leader, by the way, in the most important way, in the sense that you had a totally muddled message coming from the administration where you had Burks and Fauci saying one thing and Trump saying something totally different. But instead of reining in Burks and Fauci and saying, no, 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 this is the way we're going to have it. We're going to get schools open. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. He didn't want to take the heat for being a leader either. So he wanted to go get up there and say whatever kind of incendiary and sometimes right things he wanted to say, but then he didn't want to take responsibility for his leadership. So that that disgusts me. Well, vaccines. Let's talk about vaccines. The Because I actually think vaccines are one of those lingering issues that even if we don't get another pandemic, I think we're kind of living with the consequences right now. And yeah. let me sort of try to posit a couple of statements that we can either stipulate to or not. Number one is that Operation Warp Speed was probably one of the biggest successes of this otherwise really tragic and sad period of time. Uh, is that is that your reading of it too? Like this is quite it a is. miracle? It is. And there's a real example of how one of my favorite themes, but how government needs business and business needs government. You know, this idea of a free market is just a uh, a flawed concept because even the freest of markets function because of the law society has set down for it, be it bankruptcy court or the existence of a limited liability corporation. And so in the case of the pandemic, the government looked and said, vaccine makers are never going to produce vaccines for all sorts of reasons. So we have to, we, the government have to lay down the preconditions that will get them to produce vaccines and do it quickly. So that's great. Okay. At least we've got that good news. Uh, And, you know, we, we could do a science pod on just the breakthrough in, in vaccine technology and why that's really important and it could potentially be really critical down the line if we face anything like this again, but also has implications for other diseases that might not be related to pandemics. So that's all great. Two is the 
question around the communication of the vaccines and then the mandates for the vaccines. So I want to kind of separate two questions. I want to put the mandates last because I think in order to get to the mandate, there has to be a, a certain assumed knowledge around the effectiveness of the vaccines on a personal level. So let's let's tackle personal the personal questions around the vaccine first. The vaccines were communicated as what would prevent you from getting COVID. And I think the messaging adapted to say, well, it would mitigate the effects of COVID and, and significantly decrease the likelihood that you would have ser- that you have serious effects of COVID or die. My understanding is that's largely correct. And it was like, there was a little bit of ineffective messaging around that, but by and large, like that kind of broke through for most people, but there was an extreme amount of skepticism of that on a personal level, even before we get to the mandates. Is there any, like, what, what is your reading of that whole world? Like, you come out of this being like, well, by and large, most people should just get the vaccine before we even get to the, van, the mandate question. So I'm a little bit mixed about that. And I do think the vaccines were a miracle, as we've already said. But the clinical trials about the vaccine measured what you said, their ability to keep people from getting severe COVID, hospitalization, or death. They didn't measure whether or not you'd get COVID at all, and they didn't measure whether or not you transmitted to other people. And so I think the first key mistake that public health made was overselling the vaccines and saying that if you take this, you will not transmit. And Rochelle Walensky, who was then the head of the CDC, even said, this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. There was never any proof for that. You could either say, give them credit for it just being wishful thinking, like, please, you take this and you won't transmit. Let's just wishful thinking. Or you you could attribute a little more malevolence to it if you wanted a conspiracy theory that the government had purchased all these doses from pharmaceutical companies and goddamn it, people were, were, were going to take them. But I think that was a mistake because the problem is in today's world, if you don't tell people the truth, they eventually find out. And when they find out you've lied to them, you can't get that trust back. Yeah. And so you remember that big out, outbreak in Provincetown where people who were vaccinated got COVID and it became this big, huge scandal. Oh my God, people who were vaccinated got COVID. <laughs> <laughs> it should actually have been a time to celebrate. It should have been, and none of those people went to the hospital. Wow, look at these great vaccines. But in, instead, it became this horrible thing that you could take the vaccine and still and still get COVID. And so I think that is a little bit problematic. And I think the messaging around healthy people getting vaccinated and getting boosted over and over again is has continued to be problematic. We're the only country that recommends boosters, annual boosters for people over five years old who are otherwise healthy. Other countries do it for the immunocompromised and the elderly, but not healthy people who are not probably not at risk of severe COVID anyway. And so I think there's been an oversell in the US that I think has not been great for trust. And so in generally speaking, looking back, the mandates themselves, either the private sector or public sector mandates, how do you come down on those? I I understand the wishful thinking early on. I guess I'm I'm a little less appalled by them than than some people I know, but they still all rely on this idea that if you got vaccinated you weren't going to transmit. And if you got vaccinated you weren't going to transmit, then fine, have a mandate, right? But if you can get vaccinated and still transmit, what What's the point of a mandate? And then there's a divide between private sector and public sector, right? Should the private sector be able to mandate whatever it wants? I guess. Um, But public sector mandates, government mandates, I'm not as sure about. Mm -hmm. 
And as you look at it now, this, and I haven't looked at the data recently, but I saw like in the sort of immediate aftermath, there were a lot of these parents who become radicalized through the pandemic now refusing other vaccinations yes, right? in schools. What did you might not have looked at this data in a while, but is that is that a lasting effect now? Or I'm really worried about it. We had uh, um, we had a lot of vaccine skepticism in this country even before the pandemic vaccine. You know the work of that British doctor that ended up being discredited. I still I was at a um, chiropractor the other maybe a year a couple of years ago, and one of the books out in this chiropractor's office cited this doctor saying that vaccinations cause cause autism. So there's already that whole strain out there of skepticism in in this country. You didn't need much more. And the truth is, vaccines are. I, I, we quote in the book Mansaf Slawi, who is the head of Warp Speed, saying that vaccines have done more for human life than any tool in history. Right. They're incredibly important. And even if you're skeptical of a COVID vaccine for your otherwise healthy child, that does not mean you should be skeptical of a whooping cough or a measles vaccine. Um, and, and so the, so it really worries me. It really worries me. You, know, you talk to anybody who deals with the effects of vaccine skepticism and the very real and terrible illnesses that we can prevent that may not be prevented if people don't get vaccinated. And it's really horrifying. Yeah. Well, okay. And then the last issue, which we don't need to spend a lot of time on, is the masks, which it seems like, based on your book, the conclusion is the mandates, no evidence that the mandates were were in any way effective. There, There's perhaps a personal argument, depending on your circumstance and what mask you are using for, yes. like, let's say you ride the New York City subway uh, every single day and you have the right kind of mask. Potentially, there's an argument for you to wear that mask. Is that kind of like where we are today? Yeah, that, and that's where, and that, and that's not to say that a really well done study couldn't show um, that a mandate had efficacy. It's just that that hasn't been done. So I think that that initial study, which came out a year or so ago, the Cochrane study, got widely misrepresented because they didn't say masks don't work. They said Matt, there is no evidence that a mask mandate works. Those are two very different statements. I would get annoyed as the pandemic wore on and cities were still passing out those awful paper masks that obviously do nothing. And I think, again, it's a terrible failure of communication because we should have said much earlier, by the way, it's not really clear that masks work, but for sure, a properly worn, well-fitted KN95 is going to do more for you than a bad paper mask. So let's not pretend all these things are created equal. If you're really concerned about your health, get yourself a good mask and, and wear it. And we didn't, public health didn't, didn't say that for a really long time. We all pretended that those terrible paper masks were doing something worn badly hanging off people's noses right what is the point of that right all you all you do is you can say maybe you can make the argument better than nothing but you so distrust when you don't own up to the obvious yeah i think in hindsight i think maybe one of the lessons of the pandemic is more information the better especially when everybody stopped their life to adhere to these restrictions. So like a good example is like the, the, the mechanistic argument in favor of really good masks is still sound, but the question of the practical implications of it are very different because a, a the right kind of mask worn 100% of the time uh, will work, but the implications of that 10% when you're pulling it down or not having is actually pretty huge. So explaining that to people probably matters a lot. And I think that would have made a critical difference in schools where there's just no chance that kids are going to be a hundred percent, you know, right. You know, they're not right. going to hear to a hundred percent. 
I think saying I don't know would would go a long way. And I know that's a controversial point because we all think that everybody other than ourselves is too stupid to possibly know what what to do with ambiguous advice. But I don't think there's whether or not that's true. And I actually don't think it is. But I, I think that I think people are a lot smarter than you give them credit for, especially taken off social media and asked to figure things out for for themselves. But I also think we don't have a choice because if you tell people things that turn out not to be true, you lose their trust. Yes. And trust is the most critical element in a functioning society. So how much better to say, I don't know. We hope. We hope this vaccine prevent, prevents transmission. We really think that wearing masks might make a difference. We're not, we're not sure. There's no study that shows that it does, but we really think this might help and it's not a big ask. So can can we do this as yeah. a society? Amen. And, to and, that. and that yeah, and that humility would just would go would go a long way, I think. Yeah, like something like, hey, like our best available evidence tells us right now this is the right thing to do. You should be prepared that we're gonna change as circumstances change and the evidence changes, and that's what science is. I, I do think there was just way too much hubris wrapped around a lot of these recommendations. Yeah. Yeah. And Hubris and, and righteousness back to it goes back to the politics surrounding it because it became your belief in masks or in lockdowns became a sign that you were a good Democrat. And so it all became this circular thing. If you were a good Democrat, you believed in lockdowns and masks. If you believed in lockdowns and masks, you could virtue, virtue signal to the world about what a good Democrat you were. And so it all got wrapped into this ball that didn't let in any air or any dissenting opinions. Well, uh, Bethany, thanks for joining us again. And, and, Thanks to your dogs for uh, holding it together long enough. They, uh, listeners, um, sorry about all that noise in the background, but hopefully it's manageable. Um, for listeners, you know, make sure to, if you have any voicemails for us, send them in, 321 And have a happy new year, everybody. We'll be back next week at our normal time.